Welcome to another great episode of Skip to the Good Part. Get relaxed and ready to enjoy some great conversations with excellent authors. But before we get into all that, a quick word from our sponsor, EditMyNovel.com. Hey, babe, what you working on? Oh, me? <laughs> Just finishing my life's work. You know, the quintessential great American novel. Really? Well, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah, I know. When I get done with this bad boy, my name will be up there with all the great American writers. You know, like Faulkner, Walden, Tolstoy. Uh, Tolstoy's Russian? Uh, he is. Um, I thought he's from the Midwest. Uh, anyway, my name will be up there soon enough. Hmm. Who's your editor? Editor. Do I need one? Well, from the looks of it, I mean, I don't see any punctuation here. Um, isn't punctuation optional? Listen, go to editmynovel.com. That's edit-my-novel.com. Hey, Miss Punctuation, wouldn't that be edit-my-novel.com? <laughs> cute. You're cute. Uh, you definitely need their services. They've helped hundreds of authors finish their life works, uh, formatted their books, and given publishing advice. The whole shebang. Editmynovel.com. Your one-stop shop for all the editing assistance you could ever need. They're fast, comprehensive, and affordable. Editmynovel.com. Very cool. Those hyphens really do pay off. Edit-my-novel.com. Your book, only better. Hi, I'm Kara. And I'm PJ. And welcome to Skip, Skip to, to the, the Good, Good Part. We've got a delicious treat on the show today with a multi-talented Stacey Bayless. She writes delicious foodie fiction like Off the Menu and Recipe for Disaster and Wedding Girl. And recipes are included, and they're delicious. Absolutely delicious. It's a must. It's a must. She was a regular contributor to the Rachel Ray Show, where she offered lifestyle and entertainment tips. And she was inducted to the Chicago chapter of Le Dame d'Escoffier. I'm sure I'm butchering that. Um, an international organization for women in the food, wine, and hospitality industries. Stacy, welcome. Hi, it's good to see you. Oh, so good to see you. Um, okay. You are such an amazing writer. I love your your conversational tone. It's it's amazing. You start reading one of your books. You can't really put it down. It feels like you've met a new friend, a new best friend. Wow. And we've known each other for a long time. And I have to I have to say, um, you are the only I've I've met like hundreds of authors, and you are the only one I know that has fully crushed the slush pile. You for your first novel. Right. I, I'm pretty sure this is right. You um, did not have an agent. You submitted it to Harlequin at Red Dress Inc. And yeah. uh, like then had a book deal and an agent in like a month. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. mind it blowing. That's how talented Stacy is, everyone. That's how talented. You know, my 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 dad always said he'd rather be lucky than smart. I shoot for <laughs> both when I can do it. But yeah, it's you know, it's the story that other writers tend to hate. But I try to remind everybody it's a very hopeful story. I sent yeah. one uh, one unsolicited, unagented submission to one publishing house, and 29 days later, I had a two book deal and an agent. But I was not famous. I didn't have an in. I, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't have a famous parent to lean on. Mm -hmm. I literally just sent in a book that I had sort of written by accident and everything else fell into place. So yeah. I like to remind people that it means <laughs> that it's still possible to sort of get discovered out of nowhere and yeah. build a career that will make you no money. <laughs> that is the that is the caveat but i still think it's amazing and also just a testament i feel to i mean 
to your work and, and oh, your talent. You. Yeah. I'm, I'm still waiting to get discovered. Um, <laughs> I'm like fourth string punter for the Chicago bears now, um, which I, you know, I, I keep eking out of the organization in my dreams every year. So eventually I'm just going to be second best water boy. I don't know. It's going to be, you're discovered by me, honey. You're discovered by me. <laughs> Look, I don't know how much you want to stay involved. I was at that game yesterday and we left and we went, how is it possible that we won the game and we still feel disappointed? I know. Oh, oh man. I feel like that so is terrible. That just happens as Bears fans. That's, that's, that's the legacy of Chicago sports. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah mean, that was an ugly game yesterday. Whew. It was, you know, it was beautiful. We have season tickets and, and awesome. we have really good seats and, you know, we were there with a friend. Everything was fine. And we won. And it was still wildly disappointing and unsatisfying. <laughs> because we, we tend to win in spite of ourselves. Yes. We yeah. really try to lose, but sometimes. We do. We do. <laughs> well, anyway, back to you, because yeah. this is the Stacy show. <laughs> um, I read, or actually, because I can't read, Kara told me, that you spontaneously began reading before your third birthday so, um, you know, at that time, most of us can barely manage potty training and you were reading. So what was it like being a prodigy? And like, how did your parents like, did they put you into Stanford, like by fourth grade? Like what happened? <laughs> no. It, so, yeah. So I sort of randomly started reading. I was like two and a half um, and scared the pants off my mother. So my mother came <laughs> home. We were at home and she, we were going to read a book and I said, I will read it. She said, okay. And then I read her the book and she thought, okay. I mean, I, I was walking and talking at nine months. Oh, so they knew that there was something happening. Yeah. Um, and I read her this book and she's like, okay, she's a really smart kid. And we've read this book a lot. So she pulled another book off the shelf that we really hadn't seen. And then I read her that one and she said, okay. And she put me down for a nap and she called my dad at work in hysterics. You have to come home. You have to come home. He's like, Oh my God, what happened? Like, She's reading. So, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that was a problem. Um, a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have. You know, the thing that was great. Uh, one of the amazing things about my parents is that my parents appreciated everything about me and everything about my sister and let us be who we were. And even though you know, I did a bunch of stuff like that early and I was what, you know, they, they listed me as a gifted child, whatever that means. Um, but they never did that thing where they tried to then push precocity. They never tried to mm. turn me into like a dancing monkey for their friends. You know, you see all these kids that are super smart and you meet them and their parents and they're not smart kids. They're like, they've been crafted into tiny adults mm -hmm. uh, for the, for the ego of their parents or the benefit of their parents, friends, or, a you know, a live vicariously thing. And my parents just let me be a kid who happened to be smart about certain things because, um, I can't do math to this day. <laughs> me either. So, whatever the reading thing was, I am 52 years old and my husband will let me measure things in the house because they don't want so let's be clear um, <laughs> about that. And and in fact, you know, one of the things they actually did for me was when I was in school, um, my grammar school sort of didn't really know what to do with me. They, you know, it was the 70s, first of sure, all. So sure. was, there wasn't a lot of support. I was in a Chicago public school. That was very important to them. Mm -hmm. uh, both my parents were activists in, in public education in Chicago. And 
at one point, the school wanted to double promote me, have me skip two grades. Wow. And my wow. parents said no. Mm. Uh, they said, you're going to have to find another way to give her the academic support she needs while keeping her with her age group because sure. of the social factor. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you kind of, you know, it's like you just made the joke about, did you just go to college like Doogie Hauser? But the fact is, it can be very complicated for kids that are excelling in whatever way to then be othered. Um, in school, right? Yeah. School is hard enough. You guys have kids. Yes. I choose not to do that. Um, uh, kids can be awful. And anything that you do that sets a kid apart, makes them different, makes them special, can be really complicated for them socially. And my parents were smart enough to say, you know, is she maybe going to, you know, be a, a, a head of the rest of her classmates academically? Fine. But socially, she'll be where she's supposed to be. And we'll give her any extra support she needs at home. They were great about taking us to experiences mm -hmm. and travel. And we went to the symphony and we went to theater. And we were very fortunate that we were financially able to do that. Yeah. Uh, but for them, they really just let my sister and myself be who we are. My sister was uh, you know, a really good athlete. She was in three different sports when she was in school. She was also in student government. I was more artsy. So I was band and drama and poetry. And my sister was athletic and organizational and we were never in competition with each other. Sure. And, and, you know, my parents just sort of let us excel the way we excelled naturally without really pushing us towards any one thing, which is, uh, I think the way to handle it. Oh yeah. I, I just think that's so important because there is that element of socialization and, and that's as important in, in many cases as the academics can be, you know, you really need that friend group and that socialization. And it's hard, especially at that age, if you were going to go from like six or seven to like nine or 10, that, that would have been a nightmare maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they wanted, they wanted to move me after my second grade year, they wanted to have me skip third and fourth and put me right into fifth oh, grade. Wow. And that that would have just been, that would have been, now the, the thing that turns out to be funny about that is that when I was in sixth grade, all of my friends were in eighth grade. And when I was a sophomore in high school, all my friends were seniors. Like in high school, all my friends were seniors to the point that the teachers forgot I wasn't a senior oh, that's and funny. sold me two tickets to senior prom. Um, and I had the worst case of senioritis. I had a worst case of senioritis my sophomore year. That's so funny. I actually did my senior year. Um, but I was able to make those choices on my own. And it wasn't that I didn't have friends my own age. I just naturally had an affinity for people that were slightly older. Yeah. Um, but, but that was a choice. And I always think it might not have happened actually if I'd been in their classes, because when you're that age and you're hanging out with a younger kid, there's a little bit of that little sister mascot mm -hmm. fun thing that kids are choosing. If a sure. younger kid is in your class, particularly if they're really smart, they're making you look bad. Why is this baby doing better yeah. than me? It, sense, it can set up a sort of antagonistic thing. So I always think that actually, even though all of my friend groups kept graduating and leaving me, um, <laughs> it, it, they probably wouldn't necessarily have been my friends sure. if I had been an actual classmate.
Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about, um, some of your work and, uh, the mouthwatering culinary fiction you write seriously. Um, you know, have DoorDash at the ready <laughs> on your readings. What is Daisy Flux? Um, so you, you, in, in good enough to eat, you write about our, many times you write about our complicated relationship with food, you know, as well, um, in good enough to eat, your protagonist loses half her body weight, opens a gourmet health cafe. Um, but then her husband leaves her for someone, a woman twice her size. So cooking, but yet at the same time, cooking can become a very healing process, you know, in your books for your characters. So how, how do you think about the, our relationship with love, healing and food? How, how do you feel like those relate to one another? I think they're all, they're all part and parcel, right? So food, food is, as you say, uh, an essential part of my life, but also a very complicated one. I've been heavy since I was a kid. Um, I come from a family that that struggles with with obesity and and disordered eating. Um, at the same time, eating is a huge part of how we celebrate and how we comfort and how we engage with other people and how we express love. And so I grew up with all of that. I also grew up really drawn to books that use food to help explain storylines. Like you think about some of those, uh, was it the, the secret, the secret princess or the secret garden where they, oh, you know, yeah. all of a sudden there's buttered crumpets or there's yeah. a feast, or there's, you know, all of that just was always exciting to me. And frankly, I don't really trust books that don't have food in them. <laughs> right. Um, What's happening here? Where's the food? Why are the characters yeah, eating? <laughs> from a scientific perspective, right? We make over 200 independent decisions about food every single day. Is that right? Think I, about it this I way. am sure I do more than that. <laughs> well, it could be more. But think, I mean, think about it. There's snap decisions. It's not like I'm going to sit and have a ponderous decision about food right now. But imagine you go to a restaurant. Maybe there's 50 things on the menu. If you read all of them, every time you read something, I like this, I don't like mm. this, the main sounds good, but I don't like the side. I, eh, I wonder if I could get that with something else, with something other dressing. Like you could make a hundred decisions, snap decisions at one meal. Oh, sure, sure. Right. Yeah. And so the idea that you can get through books where nobody ever even thinks like, oh, I need a snack or I'm going to have breakfast now. Or, you know, it's only about special occasion meals or people mentioning we're going to go on a date to dinner. And even then the food becomes ancillary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I started writing because of my relationship with food, food became another another character in my books. Yeah, it absolutely the, is. Yeah. You know, the, the two the two extra characters in my books have always been Chicago um, and food. Awesome. And it's no different than like in Sex in the City. The two extra characters were New York. And shoes. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, New York and fashion. Whatever yeah, yeah. Else. But there's ways that that drives a story forward, particularly, and I think you know this as well from your work, when you're writing a first-person narrative, you are presenting a storyline through the lens of your main character. Mm -hmm. We all know that that lens is flawed. The way that we see ourselves, the way that we present ourselves is not 100% honest. And so the only ways you have into your main character for your audience, for your reader, are outside things that are happening. There are the ways that your character is responding to circumstances. There are the conversations they have with other people in the books. There are the ways that the other characters in the books respond to them. 
one of the things for me has always been the way somebody cooks and eats mm. tells you everything you need to know about them. Oh, that's interesting. True. Um, yeah. And so the example I always give is you talk, you think about your friend group, right? Something bad happens to you. You have the friend that will show up at your door with a bottle of tequila and a bag of chips and say, let's go. You've got the friend that says, come on, we're going to the spa. I booked us a massage. You have the friend that will just send you a really beautiful handwritten card. And then you have the friend that shows up with like soup and homemade bread and yeah. brownie and everything. Else. And we need all of those people, right? Mm-hmm. None of them is better than the other, but the one that homemade cooks for you when you need it. Mm-hmm. That tells you who that person is. When somebody is describing somebody to you that you maybe you don't meet, um, and they say, I mean, if they say to you they are a gluten-free, dairy-free, raw food vegan, that tells you something rather if they say, oh, they do barbecue competition. Right, you right. You start to get an image of who this person is. Um, and so for me, I used food in the books as a way to show who the characters are and how, and how they interact with one another. Um, and then good enough to eat was the one where we started putting in the recipe. So good enough to eat, which you mentioned was my fifth book. All of the books before that had really strong food themes. Good enough to eat was the one where we said people need the recipes. Yeah. And, um, and some of that was, I was at the time I was a frustrated, you know, a, a wannabe cookbook writer. Right. I think it's like, you know, they say all all like sports heroes want to be rock stars and all rock stars want to be sports heroes. <laughs> sure. I think I think for a lot of us, like, you know, we write one thing, but we sort of have our eyes on something else. And I'm, you know, fiction writer, but I always had an eye on, on you know, food and recipe development. So we started putting the recipes in the back of the book and, and got a very good response. And so ever since then, there's always been at least a few recipes of dishes that are pivotal in the book mm-hmm. that are then added at the end in a little mini cookbook. No, that's awesome. I mean, first of all, it's a brilliant move to put the recipes in the book, in the back of the book. Um, I've always felt like, uh, I, did you ever read game of Thrones? Yeah. Okay. So reading those, cause all right, I can read, I guess, but <laughs> reading those, um, I, I was always like George R. R. Martin. He's gotta be hungry. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, right? a lot of detail yeah, around right? every feast. Yeah, it's like, uh, geez, you know, don't don't shop when you're hungry, and uh, you know, maybe maybe when you're when you're hungry and you're writing, it it did, does that actually? That's, there's a question. Does that happen? Like if you're if you're like getting a little peckish and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, I, I could go for some tuna salad, or whatever, and then do you, do you start like incorporating that in the book, or do you like are you planning it out like a meal? Like, hey, in this book, I'm going to have these certain, whether it be um, ethnic foods or or certain dishes that, you know, remind me of my my own childhood or whatever. Like, how does how do you incorporate all that? The the food in the books, like a lot of what happens in the books happens for me really organically. Um, that is not to say that things that are going on in my actual life don't play a part. They play a huge part. So um you know, I wrote, I wrote my, my book, uh, recipe for disaster, um, which is about a woman who in one horrible day loses her job and her fiance and her apartment. And she has to move into the half finished wreck of a house that she's, that she's renovating to flip as, as a firm. 
I wrote that book shockingly while my husband and I were in the middle of a four and a half year renovation of, <laughs> of our historic house um, that we were living in while we were renovating it. And so there was a lot of things. I mean, there were a lot of things that were my fear that were going to happen that ended up in the book because they're funny that thankfully did not happen in our reno. But I will say when it got time to describe the renovation of that kitchen, a lot of my appliances showed up in the book. Um, and certainly as I go through phases where I'm either experimenting with different types or styles of cooking or different types of entertaining that will show up in the book in general, though, I try very hard for my characters to be independent, real people. And so when they are going to cook or they're going to sit down and enjoy a meal, the way that they cook or the way that they order has more to do with who they are and where they're at in their life than what I might be craving or cooking at home. There's certainly overlap, um, but they're not, but I don't plot out the, the specifics. And the only time I had to do a little bit of that was in out to lunch where one of the main characters uh, at the beginning, when you first meet him, he only eats 11 things. Um, <laughs> And so I had to know in advance what those 11 things were and have some back pocket ideas about how someone who was his friend, who was needing to cook for him, who was a, you know, was a chef, how they were going to figure out how to feed this person in a way that allowed them to cook from their heart, but not give him anything that was not on his list. Sure. Sure. Which, which sounds like I, some of our kids at our house. That was a little bit more complicated for that one. So I did do a little advanced planning on that, but in general, um, when the writing is really working and I think Kara knows this, you're sort of channeling it from somewhere else. Once you know who those characters are, where they live, mm-hmm. how they live, what the circumstances are that surround them and what the major conflict is in their life, then you're just sort of taking dictation and trying not to get in their way as they live their lives and you take it down. And the same happens with food in in the book. So someone will decide, okay, I'm going to have a party. And then I try to have that character go through the planning process of what does that look like in menu planning and cooking and organizing and and all that. And it just kind of flows, which is for me that that happens. Yeah, no, that's great. And you're so, you're so right that the characters sort of take on a life of their own and then they just go where they're going to go. And, and it makes sense that they would automatically like just eat what seems right in the moment. And they often make decisions that you're like, why are you, I mean, I was sick. We're off plotting. Right outside of my computer and I'll be yelling at the computer screen. Why did you do that? Because now I have to write you out of that problem that you've just taken off yourself. Exactly. That was a really dumb decision. Like now Uh, I'm way off outline. Like, forget it. Yeah. See, I don't outline. So yeah. they go wherever they go. And then I got to write them back into, into some sort of sanity. <laughs> but I will, I will talk to them. Like, I really wish you wouldn't do that because it's not healthy for you, but yeah. Oh, yeah. they're going to do what they're going to do. I'll just figure out how to balance it. Right. Right. Well, have you, have you always uh, loved writing? Has that always been, you know, a part of your life, something that you, you love to do, uh, or is it something that came later? No, you know, I, what's interesting is that I've always loved writing. Um, when I was little, it started with poetry. Um, I was a big Shel Silverstein girl. Oh, so of course. Super, End of the sidewalk. Super, 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 
all that was all that was great. I, I think I really got the bug um, when I was seven, so second grade. Um, the Chicago Public Schools put out an anthology of all the best writing from all of the schools, and I had a poem that got published in this anthology. Awesome. The anthology was called Freckled Fantasies. <laughs> Love it. Uh, 1977, such a good year. Um, and, and my poem was called Suppose I Were a Snowflake. And it was 11 four line rhyming stanzas of what would it be like to be a sure, snowflake? Sure. Um, but it got published in a real book. And I thought that was the coolest thing I could ever possibly imagine. Um, and I wrote, so I wrote poetry to begin with. And then in, I think like, must've been like fifth or sixth grade. I started doing short stories. Um, uh, and I did poetry and short fiction really all the way through college. I, I was, uh, I was a double major English and American studies, but I did a minor in creative writing in school. Um, and my focus was, was both poetry and short fiction. And in fact, it never occurred to me, um, that I would want to be a novelist or write anything longer. I really felt like I, I had had those two things in my heart. Poetry was more my way of journaling. I mm-hmm. never really keep a diary or journal, but poetry was sort of how I worked stuff out. Um, and short stories were just a pure creative outlet. And in fact, my first book, um, I sat down to write a short story and it didn't stop for 400 <laughs> pages. But I went, oh, goodness. I, you know, I got to like page 100. I was like, huh, I guess it's more. <laughs> yeah. And then it continued and I just let it go. And then all of a sudden it was 400 pages long. I thought, oh, I appear to have written a novel. But <laughs> then accident. I was like, well, oh. this person, these, this outlet is taking novels. I should send it to them. Sure. Uh, but what I find is that actually the... The short fiction, I think, serves my novel writing Mm -hmm. because I write chapters as many whole stories. So smart. Yeah. Uh, Right. And so I think for a reader, and I didn't think about it till I was sort of halfway through my writing career, but as a, as a passionate reader, I, I am not a fan of the cliffhanger chapter. In part because I, now I have to keep going and I, now I'm up till four in the morning and I'm finishing the whole book. I like for there to be natural ending places because as much as it's great fun to sort of blow through a book, right? I couldn't put it down. I devoured it in, in five hours, whatever it is. You lose something in that. Um, I love a good binge watch, but mm-hmm. I, I do miss something about the week that we used to have between episodes dropping of that breath to process, to think about, to wonder, to mm-hmm. get excited for and anticipate. And so I think approaching my, my writing in that way helps me engage with my reader in a way that says there are natural at the end of a chapter. And I tend to write longer chapters. Um, the end of a chapter is a, is a good breath point. It's time to get out of the bathtub. It's time sure. to turn the light off of the bed. It's time to get back to work or finish your lunch or whatever it is and come back to it a little bit with fresh eyes mm-hmm. and then see what happens. Yeah. And I think the, the, the years that I spent writing short fiction really gave me that ability to craft it in, in that way. So that really works. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so smart. And it's, it's, it's also a nice way of having, 
a nice breaking point, but also an excuse to live in the book a little longer, you know, to yeah. savor it a little more and enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, very true. So I also heard that um, in the book off the menu, it's supposedly it's based on your, your actual love story, your own love story. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. hear all about so, it. <laughs> well, um, my, my husband and I met in a very, uh, rom-commy kind of way. Love it. Meet cute. Let's do it. <laughs> an, an, ex, an excellent meet cute. And we had a really fabulous courtship. Um, and we got engaged just over a year after we met and then planned it and then decided to get married in four months. Like, because for us, uh, we both been married before we wanted to be married. We didn't care about getting married. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we probably would have eloped, except we made our families watch us marry the wrong person once. So we figured <laughs> when you find your real person. You so should, true. You your, I've been there. <laughs> you have been there. You know? oh, I've been there. I've been there. Oh, oh we yeah. We, we have both been there as well. So, exactly. we yeah. so, but we did this thing, you know, I'm, I am very much in the Dorothy Parker school of, of writing. I don't like writing. I like having written mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I will procrastinate. I will put things off. I will find a, I will find any excuse not to sit down at the computer and do my work. And frequently what will happen is um, I'll get a book deal and I will then uh, pat myself on the back for a month or two for having gotten a book deal. Then I will freak out and write a chapter or two. And then I will for a month, pat myself on the back for having written those <laughs> chapters and I'll end up writing, you know, half the book in the first, let's say nine to 10 months before, before the book is due and then the last half in a panic in two months before that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, usually I have a year at least to write a book, sure. but, um, <laughs> when we got, we got engaged in December, we, in November, I had signed a two book deal and I had said to my editor, um, I want to write this book a uh, happy love story. The conflict needs to be work-related. I'm, I'm living a love, a love story right now. And I can't write a book where, where the love is a complication um, or where you wonder whether they're going to end up together. I said, I wanted an unapologetic love story with work crap making you as, as, as the conflict. And so I signed that book deal in November and they said, we want to shift you to a different hub date. Do you think you can deliver mm early. You think oh. you can deliver an audience? And I said, sure, sure no problem. No problem. <laughs> yeah. That was November. And then in December I got engaged and we decided to get married May 1st. And so I had four months to plan a wedding, which I did. And I woke up literally the day after we got married and I went, I have written 2,500 words of a book that is due in August and we're taking a two week honeymoon. <laughs> and I rolled over and I looked at my brand new spanking husband and said, um, I'm going to write our whole courtship into this book. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, I'm going to include the emails that we sent each other when we met, when we met online. And he was like, I thought you wrote fiction. I said, I do, but um, you have proposed and married me in the middle of my process. And now I need a story <laughs> that I know. And everybody says that we have such a great story anyway. Yeah. It should be a book. And so now it's going to be, and you already married me. So, so that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm so changing the names, really but did, that's it. Yeah. I really did write our entire courtship oh, pretty amazing. much into this Aww. book and included some of our correspondence 
and included some of the weird things that happened along the way of our courtship. And so anytime somebody says to me, oh, you know, you Bill, you have such a great story. I'm like, yes. And if you would like to read about it, <laughs> off the menu at the independent bookseller of your choice. Um, I love it. I love it. See, that's what you should do in ours. That's right. You should that's do right. That's right. That's right. Well, little bits and pieces of you are in every book. So, you know. Of course they are. You know, I got to dole, you know, it's, there's so much goodness. You got to like little bits of goodness. <laughs> you got to spread it out. That's right. That's right. Wow. Readers would be overwhelmed. They'd yeah, be like, yes, please, yeah. please. But I'm sure. But I, I, I do love that because I, those words of like, can you do it early? And inside you're like, oh my God, no. But I mean, yeah, of course. Like, of course, of course, of I course. Can. no problem. Because it, the Too fear much? is if sure. you say no, they're like, well, then we'll get someone else to do it. <laughs> that fear, that fear of like, oh, well, then they're going to go, you know what? We don't want to publish it anyway. <laughs> never never right. mind. Yeah. Never mind. It, if you can't do it, it three months early. It's that, pan- it's that panic that you will not earn $11 over the last eight, over the next 18 <laughs> months. Whatever will I do? I know. Exactly. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bad. It is bad. Well, it, it's, it's like the, it's like the old joke. My husband's a wine collector and, and the, everybody always asks, Oh, did you ever want to, you know, buy a wine, buy a winery or do that? He's like, you know, here's, here's the thing. If you want to make a lot of money in the wine business, make a lot of money in another business first. Yeah. Um, because you will never make a lot of money in the wine business. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's the same really for writing. Like yes. If you want to, if you want to make a lot of money and be a writer, um, have a day job that pays you well, because unless you are Stephen <laughs> yeah. King or J.K. Rowling, yeah. um, you will not make a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And I think that's so true. Because anytime you tell somebody like, oh, you know, I'm I'm a writer and they're like, oh, well, you must be really what well, you know, doing really well. And I'm like, well, you know, writing is just like acting. So, you know, if you're George Clooney, you know, um, or Angelina Jolie, like you're going to be making quite a lot of money. But if you're the the extra in the car insurance commercial, not even the the regular person, but the guy in the back. Well, you'll make something. <laughs> you'll be an actor. <laughs> you, you, you can claim on your taxes that the, this is your job. Well, I mean, look, yes. I, I, I do make my entire living as a writer. Yes. I just don't make my living as a novelist. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm. Exactly true. Exactly true. Well, talk to us about some, some of the other things um, you're working on. Um, and I'm going to totally butcher this. Oh, uh, Madame Descoffier. I don't, I, uh, <laughs> French. I did so poorly in French. Um, yeah. I had no, very disappointed so, instructors. So. <laughs> it's all good. So Les Dames d'Escoffier or the, the Ladies of Escoffier yes. is an international organization of women leaders in the culinary field. So that's the hospitality, beverage, and food. Um, and it's an organization that was founded a little over 45 years ago in response to there being these, um, private organizations for men that were chefs that they wouldn't Mm. let women into. Oh, that's terrible. Um, and, and, you know, back in the day, women in culinary was a little bit more rare and they didn't have any support or network. And so it started really as a professional networking organization for women in, in, in the culinary fields. And it has grown over the years. We now have, I think, 27 chapters oh, that's great. Uh, in North America and Europe. Uh, we have over 2,800 members. Um, and it has become, in addition to a professional networking organization, it has become a philanthropic organization. We raise money to put women through culinary school, do small business grants for women, support women in the industries, as well as agricultural initiatives. Like, you know, we have a program called Green Tables 
that works with farmers, uh, but also does like community work. Um, the Chicago chapter does a lot of work with the boys and girls clubs, providing um, access to healthier food and then cooking classes so that you know what to do with it. Oh yeah. That's right. Uh, we've done, you know, work with green city market, that kind of thing. And it really is just a way for women to come together and support each other, uh, professionally. Um, and also have a really good time because if you want to hang out with fun people, hang out with people in the food industry. Of yeah, course. Very true. Um, I got introduced to them actually because the local Chicago chapter has uh, a book club and they read both food yeah. fiction and nonfiction. And they reached out to me to say, our book club is reading one of your books. Would you come and speak with us? Awesome. And I said, of course. And we had this dinner and I'm looking at this table of smart, interesting women and no one said no to the bread basket and everyone said <laughs> yes to dessert and they ordered everything on the menu. And I went, these are my, my I love tribe. it. I found um, my tribe. My, right. I hung out for a couple of years before I joined and I actually just finished my tenure as president of the Chicago chapter. Oh, fun. Um, so that, that was a, an exciting thing to be able to, to do some leadership in these weird times. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great organization. It's been helpful for me. Um, you know, I left, I, when I started my career, I was working full-time. I was the director of education and community programs at the Goodman theater. Mm -hmm. This is a, it was a, a job that just filled my heart. And I was working with people that felt like family and it was deeply collaborative and really interesting and fabulous creatively. But when my fourth book was about to come out, um, what I realized was that I was treading water there creatively. There was nowhere yeah. for me to move up within the organization. I had the single best job in my field in the nation. So there was nowhere else for me to go. Wow. And I was never going to know what I could be as a writer unless I did it full time. Mm -hmm. So I left a job that I loved that had health insurance oh. to sit at yeah. home in my mm -hmm. stretchy pants and make stuff up. <laughs> um, and that was... 2007. So I've been, I've been doing now writing full-time, uh, for That's that nice. long. Yeah. Um, and what I, the major thing that I missed once I got settled into sort of the work from home, be your own boss, all of that, really the only thing that I missed was that social aspect was having colleagues, which is different often than having friends, but people yeah. that get what you're going through. It's, you know, I mean, you know, this, whenever you get a bunch of writers in a room, uh, our poor spouses are just sitting in a corner because they don't know what we're talking about. And right. yet you need someone that understands what it feels like to, to, sh to be sitting at the signing table and nobody's showing up oh, yeah. or, or oh, yeah. to be the, the guest at the book club where the hostess thought it would be so cool to have you come, except all the people in the book club didn't like your book. <laughs> That's awkward. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, finding Le Dom was like finding colleagues. Sure. Uh, it was finding people whose language I spoke, who understood what I was going through, who were in various aspects of the industry, but we all share this passion for food. And it gave me that social but business tinge thing that is so hard to find if you're not working in an office um, or working in an industry that, that puts you in touch with people. So that a little bit gave me back uh, my, my tribe, which yeah. is kind of, was kind of nice. And it's been, it's been a really wonderful organization organization for me professionally. I've gotten a lot of work 
through other doms and it's been great for me personally. I've made some extraordinary friends. So that part's been good. Kudos. Kudos. That's That's great. That's truly fantastic. So like, what else are you, what else are you working on now? Like what are some new projects? What do you got coming around the corner? Well, so um, my new day job, now that I don't go to an office anymore, is I do freelance writing in the culinary stuff. So I do uh, everything from recipe development and recipe testing to product reviews and recommendations, gifting roundups, entertaining ideas, essay work, chef profiles. So I'm doing a lot of work for outlets like Food and Wine, Eating Well, Nation's Restaurant News, All Recipes, Southern Living, you know, you mm, name it. Yeah. Um, I'm now averaging, I think last year I published 350 articles. Oh my goodness. I'm working mo- mostly in the digital space um, and they need constant contact. And what I figured out, you know, I've only been doing this since 2016, but what I figured out pretty quickly was when you're used to writing 125, 140,000 words, mm-hmm. 500 words goes really fast. Oh yeah. It's nothing. It's like, yeah. Like, please. like challenge and, me. <laughs> right. And my editors, I'm, I'm known for really fast, really competent turnaround. And so I can do a lot of volume. I have done as many as 20 articles in a day. Wow, I don't recommend gosh. it, but I, I physically <laughs> can do it. Right. Um, and so I, I have a little niche. I don't do restaurant criticism or any of that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I like to do recipe development. I don't get as much of it as I would like to get. But, you know, uh, tips and tricks and hacks and all that kind of stuff that is in constant need at all of these outlets, it turns out I'm really good at it. So that's sort of my day job. So you can see my byline all over the place. Um, I am working on my 11th novel. I have been working on this book now for four years. (laughs) It's one of those. Just won't be born. It just won't be born. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm shifting genres, which is really complicated. So yeah. my, my career followed this trajectory that was actually very organic, right? I started in Chicklet, mm-hmm. my first couple books, and then I sort of moved into women's fiction. And then mm-hmm. the recipes started happening and they started calling it culinary fiction or mm-hmm. foodie fiction. Sure. We can, we can have a different conversation about if I was a boy, I could just write books. Oh, so true. <laughs> But whatever. Um, But when I did my 10th book, uh, my 10th book took me off contract. And for the first time, I had a new editor. The publisher changed at at Penguin Random House um, in in my imprint. And for the first time, I turned in the second book of a contract and they didn't turn around and say, do you want to re-up for another two Mm -hmm. books? Mm -hmm. And essentially said, oh, if Stacey has an idea, she should do a proposal. Yeah, I've been there my, many times. And my, <laughs> many my times. Agent many said, times. Right. My agent said, which is why I love him to death. He said, you know, I'm going to point out that this publisher has had eight books to break you out and they haven't done it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very gratifying thing to hear because as writers, essentially, we are told by everyone, our editors, our publishers, the PR people, everybody, that essentially it's our job mm-hmm. to break mm-hmm. ourselves out. It's our job to figure out the magic combination of social media, 
and book and topic and everything. We're always chasing that magic pill of what is going to get us that yeah. breakout book that's suddenly going to put us on the bestseller list. Yep. Yep. And they seem to forget that that actually isn't supposed to be our job. Yep. That's supposed to be the publisher's job to find the audience, to market it properly, to get it in the hands of people, to give it support. Um, they continue to operate on this crazy premise that the people that are already famous and bestsellers should get 90% of all the marketing dollars mm-hmm. for the for the company and that the mid-list authors should all then split the other 10%. Yep. Um, I'm pretty sure Stephen King could go on his front porch and whisper, <laughs> I have a new book out on Monday <laughs> into the wilds of Maine. Yes. And Tuesday, he would be an international bestseller in four languages. <laughs> it's so yep. true. So true. I don't think he needs he the doesn't. billboards and the ads and the coverage and the all of that support to continue to support that career. And God bless him. I love Stephen oh, King. Oh, I love Stephen King, too. excited yeah. that he has a new book out. Yeah. Um, but this marketing premise that the pressure is on the author to create and support their audience and to find their way uh, is flawed. Mm-hmm. So and true. to have an agent say to me, perhaps you are at the, th- that my lack of hitting a bestseller list, making a lot of money, being an, a household name is actually not my fault. And that it has everything to do with my publisher not doing their job. And perhaps I should be at a different publisher was very eye opening for me and, and says a lot about how he feels about the artistry. Yeah. That's um, a great agent, I, by the way. Great you agent. know, when I finished my 10th book, which was how to change a life, which is contemporary women's fiction. Um, I felt like I nailed it. You know, I, I really felt like, I don't know that I can do better than this in this genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, it was like testing a recipe. You get to that version where you go, this doesn't need one more grain of salt. It doesn't need four more minutes in the oven. This is it which meant to continue to write in that genre while I could certainly do it practically in my sleep was not going to reward me artistically, was not going to make me excited uh, uh, to come to the page, which is already something I struggle with. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not going to be making any money, then it does have to reward me in other ways. And he and I talked and decided that, you know, the only way to move me and not have me pigeonholed into what I was already doing was to shift genres in a, in a serious way. I couldn't just say, I want to write literary fiction because if I'm still going to write literary fiction that has strong uh, female leads and still has potentially some food themes, they're going to pigeonhole me right back into where I was. They're going to market it in the same way. It'll be trade paperback. It won't be hardcover, all of that. He said, you really have to break out of your genre in a way that they can't move you in a direction you don't want to go. And you have to write the whole book. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're back to square. I mean, you are back to square. Well, like, not square, square one, one, but, but it's, one. it's like you haven't, I've been there, you know, even within the genre, they're like, we want to see the entire manuscript. And I'm like, I've only been doing this 20 years, but okay. Yeah, exactly. My, <laughs> yeah. my first big, my first book came out in Oh four. Like yeah. I, I, yeah. I've published 10 of them. I, I think I know what I'm doing, but um, he said, you know, if you could write the best three chapter synopsis proposal in the world, but you, it gets in the hand of a wrong editor and then they will make you massage it into something else. You write a whole manuscript, then what they're buying 
is that completed thing. It's also very, it, it's harder to, to shift it. Um, so the book that I'm working on right now is half historical and half contemporary and it's literary fiction. Um, and it moves back and forth between these, these two storylines and the historical part is set in Regency England. Oh, so it took me, it took me two years just to do the research, Yeah, which was really annoying because I'm super lazy. And I was like, (laughs) you know, I, I did that master's degree, but I graduated in 94 and I'm not really interested in research, (laughs) Um, but uh, I did this to myself. So it took me a couple of years to do the research. And I was also, I finished the research in November of 2019. And my thought was perfect. I'll take the holidays. I'll get through. And in the new year, mm. I'll start working on this book. <laughs> and then let's see what happens. Oh, I don't know. Was there a pandemic? <laughs> so there's that. Um, it's hard to concentrate. It was hard to do anything in that whole period of time. Besides well, just worry, we're all going to die. I don't know. <laughs> well, there was that. I mean, we, I had the double whammy of, so January, 2020, all of a sudden things started to be weird. And then in February of 2020, um, my dad's, uh, cancer came back. And oh, so, so 2020, uh, you know, all the way up through, uh, earlier this year, he passed in March. Um, so the focus really was mostly on, uh, trying to stay sane during a pandemic, trying to stay safe during a pandemic and, and spending as much time with family as mm-hmm, possible. Sure. And so I, and, and because, because working on the book, I'm off contract, I don't have a deadline, but that also means there's no money attached. Um, it really was important to me with whatever work time I did have to make sure that I was, you know, paying the mortgage. Yes. Um, so I really did not do much of anything. I mean, I think, you know, where normally I can write a whole book in a year, I wrote about a quarter of this book if, you know, between 2020 and, and 2022. And I'm just now really getting back to it in any sort of meaningful way, which is, is very rewarding and fulfilling. It is the hardest thing I've ever Mm. done writing wise. Um, but both my husband and my agent say they think it's the best thing I've ever written, the parts that they've seen so far. So that feels good. It feels good to me. Good, yeah. Um, I I have no idea how long it will take me to finish this manuscript, but luckily there's no pressure. Everybody is saying it's going to take whatever time it takes. Yeah. And don't push yourself to do it. If it's not coming, then put it aside. There's other stuff. So it's still got strong female leads. It's still got a lot of food. It's just a slightly different style of writing. I'm writing in third person omniscient for the first oh, time. Wow. That's yeah. That's a challenge, which is a, which is a challenge. The other challenge, the thing that's been su- super surprising about it is that I was really worried that the historical part is actually first person and the contemporary part is third person. And I thought the historical part was going to be so hard because I was going to have to find yeah. that that voice, mm-hmm. right. That, that you don't, that, yeah, it's not contemporary. That, you don't that, hear it. Yeah. Voice and all of the references that part is coming easy. Really? The contemporary part is kicking my butt because <laughs> I'm surprised I always have written contemporaneous with, with what I'm living, right. All yeah. of my books are set in the year in which they were written. Sure. So the plan was that this book was going to be written in 2020. Mm, yeah, that's a problem. Mm, yeah, I did not want to write a book about a pandemic. 
Yeah. Or no. an after, yeah. after the pandemic starts to wane or what is the next pandemic? I did not, you know, there's, that doesn't have a place in the story. So I had to backdate this story to 2018, mm. which is the yeah. hardest kind of historical fiction to write, because if you are not living in the moment mm-hmm. for cultural references, what's in the news, everything else, every time I have to reference anything that is sort of in the world, in the broader world, as opposed to just the world of my characters, I got to go back and say, was that song on the radio? Yes. Was, was yeah. that, you know, was this person in the news for some reason? What was happening politically? It is a giant. <laughs> I I know your pain. I'm working on a. It's this, this story is not, has not been sold, but it, it's a, it's a concept of, um, it is just taking a rom-com straight to the pandemic. So these two people are basically at a resort when everything closes down. So it's, it's, they, they can't get home. And so they're stuck there. So the, it's the pandemic's happening around them, but they're not really affected. It's not like, you know, cause they're quarantined already. Um, it's like those people, were they on their honeymoon yes, when they got Yeah, stuck? I was completely awesome. inspired by that. But what if it was two strangers and they hated each other on site and now they're stuck in this resort and, you know, so that's where it starts. But the same thing, like I am referencing, you know, Bridgerton. Well, Bridgerton's not out yet. You know what I mean? It's twenty. It's this twenty nineteen. Bridgerton has not hit yet. So I was like, oh. Yeah. So you go through down this path, and I'm like, no, I got to rewrite, re- rewind, rewrite. It's hard. It's hard. It's, it's weirdly hard. If yeah. you had said to me four years ago when I started this project, oh, it's going to be the contemporary part that you're going to hate. <laughs> right. I'm like, no, no way. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and you have to be so careful. What I'm learning about historical is you have to be so, so careful about those details because the historical fiction readers are no mm. joke. Mm-hmm. They are, they, if you get a detail wrong, they will shut your career down. I believe uh, it. I believe it. I had a, I, someone told me a story about a, a woman who'd been writing historical romance forever. And the, her publisher put a, 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 I don't know if it was a photo or I think it was like one of those paintings on the cover. And the gentleman had belt loops on his pants and there were no belt loops inside the book. To be clear, she had not written about belt loops oh, because no. it was been a period of time before belt loops existed. But historical romance, Twitter, and whatever, almost shut her career down oh. because there were belt loops on the cover of this book. <laughs> and I'm going, what am I opening myself up to? I mean, I literally am working. I'm working with a fashion historian. I'm working with a food historian. Wow. Before the, when the manuscript is finished, it will go through probably three or four layers of academics who will be check, who will be there just to check historical details, facts, whatever it, it's, that part is very scary to me and very complicated, but the writing is going really easy. <laughs> uh, whereas the contemporary part that I thought was just going to be, Oh, that half of the book will just fly by. Oh, right. Right. Oh man. I feel your pain. And, literally. And I am writing it. <laughs> that the historical chapters are there to support the next chapter thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am like writing the historical chapter and then letting that lead me into the contemporary chapter. And every time I have to sit down to a contemporary chapter, I'm just 
maybe I should alphabetize my spices or perhaps <laughs> I should clean yeah. my closet. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, maybe yeah. I should reach out to Food & Wine and see if they need 15 more articles this week. So exactly. I don't what's what's on Instagram right now? Let me see. <laughs> Urgently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe there's a reel of somebody chopping vegetables. Exactly. I so I, I, got, I got two quick questions. A, yeah. you had mentioned literary fiction. Mm-hmm. Does that just mean drama? Or what does that mean? It doesn't mean drama. It's very, it's, it's a weird sort of nebulous thing. So literary fiction tends to be um, slightly more highbrow, slightly, you know, the, the storylines unfold a little differently. They're a little less formulaic than some of the different genre fictions. Like the, the various genre fictions have tropes that make sense mm-hmm. that readers look for right it's one of the benefits of labeling genre fiction is that someone can go to you know chiclet and go oh i'm gonna get a story about a young early career early relationship woman who's struggling with all of those things there's going to be some friendship stuff there's probably going to be shopping um there will be at least one horribly drunken mistake that will send everything into chaos you sort of know what those are what those are going to be literary fiction is all over the map and and really uh that can be um very freeing but it's also very hard to to pin down and what's complicated about it is what you will find very often going back to our earlier conversation is that um a guy can write it and it can be funny and light and romantic and cheeky and it will be literary fiction. And if a woman writes it in that same tone, then it's contemporary women's fiction. It's genre fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there just is still that very misogynistic thing that sort of says it, it can't be smart and funny and enjoyable and have any aspect of romantic relationship in it uh, written by a woman and not be genre fiction. It can't be literary. Um you know, I always think about how much backlash there was when Marissa Tomei won the Oscar for my cousin Vinny. Yeah. And yet nobody wants to talk about the fact that comedy is harder than drama. Of course. Right. Right. Yeah. In performance. But it is. Of course. And, And so one of the things about literary fiction, particularly for women, is that it tends to deal with more serious tropes. It it definitely leans more into not having necessarily a pat or a happy ending or even an ending that feels like an ending, um, which is one of the things that, that actually intrigues me as someone who's written genre fiction for so long. I always wrote what I thought of as hopeful endings, but not happy endings. My heroines were not chasing a, a wedding or a, a, a closing of some point, but getting to a place internally where they were going off into a more hopeful, more interesting, more satisfying future, whatever that looked like. And sometimes that involved getting the guy. And sometimes that involved the idea of maybe getting the guy still. And sometimes that involved no guy at all. Um, And I think uh, literary fiction is one of those art forms where you it's kind of like, you know it when you see it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, But it, but it also tends to, to take on things, um, particularly language, in a less conversational way and in a more directly overt storytelling, which is why a lot of literary fiction is not 
first person narrative, right. or it will take on multiple narratives throughout the course of the book, which is one of the hardest things there is to do. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's much more direct storytelling and has often a point of view that is much broader, uh, and, and not just sort of one message that's coming across. There may be, there may be several arcs within the story that are allowed to develop and, and not necessarily in service to each other, which is a, sure. it's an exciting way to write. It's just, it's really hard. And it's very hard when you are used to that very easy flowing conversational way of writing to take that step back and, and be mindful and thoughtful about all the language that you're using and, and what is driving which narrative and what's important. I'm doing more editing than I've ever had to do with any of my books in terms of going back and saying, that's a, that's a great line, but it doesn't serve the book. And so now it's got to go away. Uh, which I never have really had to do very much before. All right. And then uh, when you said omniscient third person, that is where the reader just knows everything about the world and what's going on. In yeah. It? Cause close third Correct. person, sort of like you're in the brain of the character, but it's still, it's still he or she, but, but you see all their thoughts, but no one, no one else's. Gotcha. But okay. omniscient's kind of like you dip into everybody. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. gotcha. Okay. All right. Awesome. It, it's like God is narrating the book for That's you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Bless your heart. That's right. <laughs> well, final question. It's a fun question. What uh, would readers be surprised to learn about you? What, what do you think? What do you think would surprise them to know? Oh, that, you know, that's that's sort of an interesting question because I I've, I've always sort of put everything about me out there. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, your literal open book. <laughs> I, I am, I am a, I am a literal open book. Um, what would some be? I mean, some people are surprised to know that I actually have a, a giant tattoo, uh, that goes from about my rib cage down all the way to my hip. Um, that's probably about, wow, awesome. about big. um, because obviously it's not, you know, on a sleeve, I don't have a sleeve or something. Right. See. Yeah. It's yeah. Between me and my husband and my doctor. Um, <laughs> so that that's always a little bit surprising because sure. I'm not, I mean, I, I have purple hair, but I'm not in any way like punk or edgy mm-hmm. or badass mm-hmm. or whatever. And I spend most of my life in like athleisure wear and <laughs> cooking stuff and, and typing about it. Um, so oh, that's that, badass. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's badass enough right there. Oh, no, that was, that was, two, that was two, four hour sessions of some serious inking happening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but so that's, that's something that people are like, really <laughs> surprised um, to know. What is it or what is it? Or are you able to share? I am. It is, it is, uh, a, a, a rendering of my house surrounded uh, by beautiful flowers. Wonderful. Oh, so you, you yeah. take, you take your home wherever you go. I take my home wherever I go. I'm like a snail. Um, <laughs> my, my, house, my house travels with me. Wherever. <laughs> um, it's actually, so it's a, it started, it's a cover up. So when I got with, when I was married the first time, um, I actually have a different tattoo that I got with my mom and my sister. When my mom was going to turn 50, she wanted to do something wild and crazy. And the three of us went and got matching tattoos. 
my first husband was not invited and he was mad. But I was like, it's a girl's thing. You can't come. Yeah. When he was turning 30, he decided he wanted to get a tattoo. They wanted to do one with me. And I agreed to that. And I put this very small kanji on my hip, uh, Japanese characters for, um, they don't have a, a direct translation for dreamer. So it sort of says one who imagines. Okay. Appropriate. So I got that with him. When I got divorced, I needed to sort of reclaim that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went dumbly I went to just one of those like walk in whoever's available and I said you know obviously we should stay in that genre but I need to reclaim what this is and so this guy said oh we'll put bamboo around it because that's an endlessly renewable resource and we'll do water underneath because that's cleansing and then we'll put a koi fish because that's good luck and okay I said, great and then he tattooed on me what looked like a half dead goldfish <gasps> and a smear of blue and this bamboo that just looked like weird tree trunks and the colors were off and then it healed badly. Oh so no. From the minute this was on me, I hated it. Yeah. That sucks. And I hated it, but it's on my hip. So nobody sees it really. Um, yeah, but you know, it's like, there. Um, you know, it's there. And, yeah. you know, and cover-ups are hard and they're expensive. But what I realized uh, was that in order to get it lasered off was harder and more expensive. And so I took the time to really research and find an artist here in Chicago. who's a woman artist who both specialized in cover-ups and, and also did beautiful work. And we talked a lot about what this should be. And I, you know, she just talked to me about like, what are the things that are important in your life? And I knew I didn't want to do a portrait. Um, and one of the things that is most important in my life is my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a very special thing. And she actually came by and she looked at the house and, and she's really good at architectural stuff. She said, that is awesome. I would love to tattoo your house. Uh, but I also wanted it a little bit girly. And so we talked about the different flowers and things. So there's a dahlia, which is one of my favorite, and a peony, and then there's lilies of the valley, which are my mom's favorite, and there's succulents, which are my husband's favorite, and some other, you know, so there it's sort of the house surrounded by flowers, and then there's some swirly kind of art nouveau ribbons, because that's another thing that yeah. it's a time period that I really like. So that's, awesome. that's wonderful. That's it was wonderful, but it was also like, you know, if you're gonna cover up something that's four by four and have it make sense and you've got a big house. All of a sudden, it turns into like a twelve by eight <laughs> your body, yeah, which is fine. But ow, yeah, I was gonna say ow for sure. Yeah. Ow, was, there, there, there were some, there were some tough moments of the rib cage, man. Oh, oh. oh I heard that's like one of the worst. Yeah. Ouch. Ooh. Yeah, I, you know, I know a lot of people get very addicted and the endorphin. I was like, I kept waiting for endorphins. Um, they never showed up. <laughs> they abandoned me entirely. Oh. And I'm pretty sure that I'm done with ink for yeah. now. But people do, find, people do find that a little surprising about me. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. I love it. Well, Stacy, <laughs> this has been absolutely amazing. Wonderful talking with you. Oh, yeah. And learning more about everything you're working on now. It's it's so great. Cannot wait for the well, however long it takes. You know, exactly. This new project. Well, oh, I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that you won't be sending your kid to college with it. it will, <laughs> but, but we're, we're, I, I am, I'm hopeful for a 2023 finish 
to the manuscript. Whatever happens from there, we will find out. But um, that's that's the new goal. We'll, we'll see what happens. Love go. it. Can't wait. Can't wait. Well, thanks so much for being on. Absolutely. Thank oh, it's you my so pleasure. Much. It's always good to talk to you guys. Right. Talk right. to you soon. Take care. Okay. Wasn't that a great interview? Oh, yeah. As always. As always. As always. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Skip to the Good Part. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being a part of this uh, this wonderful little thing we That's got right. going on in the romance literary corner of the bookstore. That's right. We appreciate you, the listener. And if you appreciate us, please leave us a review. Absolutely. Subscribe. Share. Share with your book clubs. Tell all them book club people, those voracious readers. That's right. And please continue to read. Absolutely. Support all these fantastic authors that we have on you know, as you're learning more about them and learning more about their their books and their works and all the things that you enjoy about them, I'll yeah, just all, keep it all up. the links are in the in the notes of the episode, so check them out. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, don't forget, skip to the good part.